This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book under the covering title Short Studies for Young Believers. And this is number one of a series that is devoted to the Gospel according to John. We have in our Bible four Gospels and if it were a matter of Christian evidence we can show that right from the earliest days it has been recognised that there were four Gospels, as we call them, presenting to us the earthly life, the birth, the life, the teaching, and the death and resurrection, and in two instances, I think, the ascension of our Saviour. Perhaps the Gospel that is most known, strangely enough, at first, is the Gospel according to Matthew. But when we read the Gospel according to Matthew, we discover in chapter 10 these words. Now let's see for ourselves. The twelve apostles are appointed, their names are given, and it says in verse 5, These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So here's a prohibition. Don't go to the Gentile. Well, it seems a strange thing to concentrate all your attention upon a gospel that says don't go to the Gentiles. Well, there's another gospel which in chapter 10, Gospel of John chapter 10, gives us this statement. Still speaking about sheep. He says in verse 16 of chapter 10 of John's gospel, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. In our authorised version, the word fold is repeated. In the original, two distinct words are used, so let's keep them. Well, now you see, we've got a little guidance. Matthew is written for one set of sheep, and John is written for another set of sheep, they don't belong to the same fold, but they belong eventually to the same flock. I don't know whether one are black-faced sheep and the other are white-faced sheep or what not, but you see, there's that distinction. So, if we have to choose four of the Gospels as most likely to impinge upon our own needs and callings, I think the Gospel of John would appeal to us, because we certainly are not the lost sheep of the house of Israel, we certainly are Gentiles, and Matthew 10 says don't go to them. Well now, another feature with regard to placing the Gospel according to John before us is discovered by looking at Matthew 22. You see, we can't read Matthew alone, but we're using it now legitimately. Matthew 22. I think by the time I dodge about with fitting verses, we could read verses 1 to 10. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Notice the word were bidden is those who had been bidden. This was not something new. They already knew that this was coming. Again, and they would not come. And again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, 
my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. So at Pentecost, Peter could stand up and now say that Christ has died and risen, that the invitation is given to the same people tarrying at Jerusalem. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise, and the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. That's looking to AD 70, when Jerusalem was actually destroyed by fire. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which are bidden are not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highway, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all, as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Well, if that looks to something that took place after AD 70, when the city was destroyed and burned with fire, that's where John's Gospel could fit in. Uh, it was a supplementary message. Those who had been bidden were not worthy. You remember in, in the Acts of the Apostles, since you count yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles in the same sort of movement. So that again suggests that John will fill the bill. Now let's think for a moment at the distinctive characteristics of the four Gospels. Matthew sets forth Christ as king, born at Bethlehem, over his head on the cross, king of the Jews. And one characteristic of Matthew is that the opening chapter starts with his genealogy proving that he was the descendant of Abraham and David, and David comes first in the order of words. When I come to Luke's Gospel, I have another genealogy, but this, instead of going back to, through David and stopping at Abraham, it goes back through David and Abraham to Adam. Inasmuch as Luke was the right-hand man of the Apostle Paul, he was showing that this Saviour was not merely the Messiah of Israel, uh, but a saviour for the Gentile too. So that old Simeon, when he came into the temple according to Luke's gospel, he said that Christ, that infant Christ, was a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of his people Israel. So we have two of these gospels with a genealogy. They both differ, but on purpose. But Mark's gospel has no genealogy. It starts straight off with the Lord preaching the gospel and working miracles. And that gives us the perfect servant. A perfect servant doesn't necessarily have to prove that his ancestors came over with William the Conqueror. The idea is that he gets on with the job. And Christ is set before us as the perfect servant. And then John's Gospel, that has no genealogy. How can you have a genealogy in John's Gospel? He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. All things were made by him. So you see, each gospel has got its own presentation and each one must be accepted on its own terms. Well now let's look at the first chapter of John's gospel, not, as you may expect, at the preface which occupies verses 1 to 18, which we shall have to look at separately, but let's look further down in the first chapter to see if we can notice any hint that the writer of this gospel had in view Gentiles or had he in view Jews. You say, how are you going to distinguish? Well, one of the characteristics is the difference in language. 
Uh, you'll see what I mean if you look at verse 38 of chapter 1. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and said unto them, What think ye? And they said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? Well, you couldn't meet a Jew today. You say to him, Rabbi, he says, Rabbi? What's Rabbi mean? You couldn't believe it, would you? And certainly not in the days of Christ. No Jew would ever need for somebody to stop his story and put in brackets that the word Rabbi meant master or teacher. Well, isn't that an evidence that John was writing to people who didn't know it? Well, that might be the outside world then. Well, let's look again. In verse 41. He first finded his own brother Simon and said unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. Now, no Jew needed to be told what the word Messiah meant. But a Gentile, he says, Messiah? What's, what's Messiah? Never heard of it. Well, he says, that means the Christ. And the Gentile would know that the Christ meant the anointed one. So, here again we have evidence that John is writing to people who didn't know Hebrew but did know Greek. Verse 42. And then he, he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Kephas. Which by interpretation means a stone. Well, did me to say that Peter didn't know what Kephas. Fancy calling him a name and it didn't mean anything. Well, he knew what it meant. But you may not have known unless it's slipped in. Well, there you've got evidence, I think, that... Um, those to whom the Gospel of John was written needed explanations. And I think one of the most serious of all of these evidences is found later on towards the coast. There is Mary in the garden and she mistakes our, our written saviour for the gardener. And then he says, Mary. And she looked at him and she says, Rabboni. And then if he doesn't spoil it and say, which being interpreted means Master. Fancy having to stop and tell you that when, when you're all of a mood to think, oh, in that morning, the risen Christ has spoken to us. But it shows that John was writing to people who did not know. Well, there's another feature that I think we ought to uh, ponder, and that is this. Turn back with you to Matthew, the first chapter. At the foot of the first chapter, we have the coming up of the teaching of the Old Testament concerning the birth of this long-promised Messiah. And so we read in verse 22, Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. That word, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Where shall Christ be born? They said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. Or again, look at chapter 2.15. And he was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. Or look at chapter 2.17. Then was fulfilled that was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying. Well now, even today you can go up to some people, especially say out in the street, and say, it's fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. He says, Jeremiah the prophet, who's he? You see? Well, Matthew knew that the ones to whom he was writing, the moment he's quoted that piece, oh yes, they say, we remember that's in our old book. 
that's in the book, that's in the book. So Matthew all the way through is that it might be fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled. But when John comes along, he's writing to people who may or may not know much about the Old Testament. So instead of saying that it might be fulfilled, you'll find the key word of John's Gospel is to bear witness. It is translated testify, it is translated witness, it is translated record. Three different ways of saying the same word. And it's only when you get into the second part where the apostles are being addressed by the Lord that you get the word fulfilled because they knew the Bible. But the outside teaching is we bear witness. It's like the healing of the blind man in the ninth chapter. The testimony there is not fulfilling some scripture, but just this. That poor blind man, he couldn't quote, have quoted, I suppose, a verse correctly in the Old Testament, although he was a Jew. But eventually he comes out of all these arguments that were surging around him and he's healing and he says, well, whether this man who healed me is a sinner or not, I don't know. He was so crude as to that. He couldn't believe it, but he said, I don't know. But one thing I know, whereas I was blind, now I see. That's witness. He couldn't quote the scripture for it, but he quoted himself. So we've got two points of view, you see. And I think if you are engaged in digging with many of folks in the open air, it's wise sometimes to remember that even the quotation of a scripture may leave, leave them blank or start an argument that takes you nowhere. Of course, you must keep the scriptures uppermost, but sometimes you have to bear a witness. I can speak from my own personal experience of this book and then proceed to chapter and verse as opportunity occurs. And so we've got this, first of all, this emphasis. That we have four Gospels, we have the parable which suggests that after rejecting two invitations, two invitations with an interval in between, their city was destroyed and burned, and then the highways were scoured for bad and good so that the wedding should still be furnished with guests. We then have in Matthew 10 that the limitation was not to the Gentiles but he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel whereas John 10 says there were other sheep that were being catered for even though the lost sheep of the house of Israel were temporarily set aside. We have Matthew stressing the fact that this and that and the other fulfilled Old Testament scripture and we have John emphasizing he bear record, he bear witness, he testified and so on. Well that places, shall I say, the gospel according to John on the map. It gives you some idea that it can be used even today while Israel is set aside and the kingdom associated with them is not being preached necessarily. That there is a message now the question is, what is that message? What is the distinctive note struck by John? Well, you, you may say one thing or you may say another. But supposing John himself has told us, well, the very first thing we ought to do is to discover if that's so. And if John has told us, well, then we've got a good start to understanding the whole of this gospel. So we'll just leave it. For a moment, we'll bring this first study to a conclusion with those little introductory words. We shall now just sing a hymn in this meeting, 
that will not be recorded and then we'll pick up our theme again afterwards and consider what John himself has to say as to why he wrote this book and what he expects the consequences to be.